46. Through Jesus' blood and merit, I am at peace with God. What then can daunt my spirit, however dark my road? My courage shall not fail me, for God is on my side. Though hell itself assail me, its rage I may defy. And so uh, we'll sing stanzas one and two. of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, you have given us your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, to redeem us from sin, death, and the power of the devil. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, taking all of the punishment that we deserve for our sin upon himself. He descended into hell, proclaiming his victory over the devil. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead, preaching the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life in his name to the whole world. We give thanks to you for all that you, your son has done for us. Help us to know and believe in Jesus. He has now ascended into heaven and sits at your right hand as our Savior and Lord. All the enemies of sin, death, and hell have been placed under his feet, and he now rules over all things for the sake of his church. Give us fervent faith in Jesus and the blessed hope that he will come again to judge the living and the dead, giving the gift of eternal salvation to all who believe in him. Through the same Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, 
one God, now and forever. Amen. That was the prayer on the second article of the Creed, which we begin this week. We had two weeks on the first article of the Creed, and now this week and next on the second article of the Creed. That particular prayer draws in all of the major events that we confess under the second article. His virgin conception by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, his suffering, death, resurrection, ascension, and so forth, giving thanks to God for them, but also rejoicing in the meaning, the theological significance of those things. So I draw your attention to the explanation of the second article in the Congregation at Prayer. For the sake of space, the normal sense lines have been uh, uh, reduced because we couldn't fit it all on front and back without microscopic type. So I like to lead you through, and this is helpful for children. In the second article explanation, we say, I believe that Jesus Christ, now who is he? He is true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary. And who is he for you? He is my Lord. And Luther asks in the large catechism, how did he become your Lord? He became your Lord by redeeming you with his blood. So the next in the small catechism says, who has redeemed me? A lost and condemned person. And like the Bible often does, so the catechism often does, it introduces a concept and then explains it. So you have, who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person? What does redeemed me? Purchased and won me from all sins, from death, and from the power of the devil. Now, how did he do it? How did he accomplish this redemption? Not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death. And then, why did he do it? That I may be his own and live under him in his kingdom, and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. And whose righteousness, innocence, and blessedness is that but the righteousness, innocence, and blessedness of Christ? Just as he is risen from the dead, that is our certainty, lives and reigns to all eternity. So this is the um, climax of the first half of the catechism. You know, some of us, um, you learn that the doctrine of the catechism is arranged in six chief parts, and that's true. But you can also take those six chief parts, commandments, creed, Lord's Prayer, baptism, confession of the keys, Lord's Supper, and arrange them into two parts. So that the first part is commandments, creed, and Lord's Prayer, the baptismal life, the commandments preach repentance. The creed proclaims our redemption in Christ and the faith that saves us from our sin. And the Lord's Prayer is the voice of faith, the holy life that claims God's promises. So that baptismal life, the first half of the catechism, is created and nurtured by what the next three chief parts are. Baptism creates it. The preaching of the gospel and the absolution sustain it, as does 
the Lord's body and blood in the supper. So you can think of the catechism, six chief parts, not in a linear fashion, you know, commandments, creed, Lord's prayer, baptism, confession of the keys, and the sacrament of the altar, but in a circular fashion where one set of three has the other set of three laid over the top of them. So in the first half, commandments, creed, and Lord's prayer, the climax of that is found in the second article. Jesus Christ is my Lord, who has redeemed me with his holy, precious blood. And then in the sacramental section, you have this recurring theme about, like under baptism, it's not the water that does these great things, but the word of God in and with the water. Uh, I believe that when the called minister of Christ deal with us by his divine command, it is as valid and certain, even in heaven, as if Christ our Lord, dear Lord dealt with us. And then it is not the eating and drinking that do these things, but the words written here, given and shed for you. So you see in the last three chief parts how the word of Christ is central to baptism, absolution, and preaching, of course, and the Lord's Supper in creating and sustaining that faith that Jesus Christ is my Lord. So you need to see the, the catechism as an organic whole, even though we walk through it sequentially. And this is the climax of that first half, Jesus is my Lord. Now the verse for the week is Genesis 3, 15. It's printed on the board. We're back into our sequence. It's in the congregation at prayer. Let us speak it together. This is after the fall into sin. Adam and Eve turned away from God's word that gave them life, ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then the Lord addressed Adam, addressed Eve, and now the Lord is addressing Satan with these words. Let us speak them together. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, the first pronoun, I, refers to God. So God is putting the enmity. How about that? Satan engages in a lot of strife. He does. The strife that he engages in, he engages in for the purpose of destroying faith in Christ. It's true. According to this verse, God is putting the enmity. Do you remember Jesus saying, do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Didn't the angel of the Lord say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace? So how do you explain this paradox? Or Jesus said, if you remember, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. How can this be? Are we not to love even our enemies? Okay, how do you explain these paradoxes? Well, what this enmity is, is the enmity that God puts between you. Now, who is the you? Satan. That's right. And who is the woman? 
Well, the Oh, that's kind of great. It's like in the Pope's church when the consecration is spoken, you know. We don't have any bells here. To uh, I'd like you to think about this woman in a threefold sense. So it's your turn. Who is this woman? Well, all right. This woman very definitely is the church. This woman is very definitely Eve. And this woman is very definitely the Virgin Mary. Okay? So I will put enmity between you, devil, and the woman. Now, what is the church made up of but all all, all, the church is made up of all people? You don't characterize, the church is made up of sinners. Well, that's true, but so is the world. So what's the distinguishing feature? The distinguishing feature is not, the church is made up of sinners, and the world is made up of righteous people. Sheep who hear his voice. So, but that's also a, a, a euphemism for something. Man, I, I can't believe it. I, believers in Christ. Don't you know the Augsburg Confession? The church is the assembly of believers among whom the gospel is preached and the sacraments are administered. So here, the enmity between Satan and the woman is an enmity that's based in faith and unbelief. Okay? If, in other words, if your neighbor believed in Jesus, and if you believe in Jesus, there would be a lot less enmity or hostility between the two of you. Or if there were hostility, faith in Christ ultimately would rule the day unless you renounce your faith and then you're still at enmity with one another. The point is simply that the enmity, the strife and the warfare, is an enmity or a strife or a warfare that turns on the issue of faith. Is there faith in Christ or is there not? Okay? And it is an enmity that God places in there between Satan, who does not want us to believe, and the woman... Who does? Now, Eve was deceived, and then she is called back to the faith by the word of God. Mary says, let it be to me according to your word, a confession of faith. And the church are the assembly of all believers in Christ, among whom the gospel is preached and the sacraments are administered. And Luther says, when you become a Christian and you are baptized, you become twice the enemy of Satan. And his attacks are chiefly about destroying your faith in Christ. Now, remember, faith is reliance. Faith is dependence. Faith is the trust of the heart that believes in Jesus. So, uh, there are masks of things that Satan, the serpent, uses to try to destroy our faith. And we tend to focus on the mask 
and not realize what the end game is. For example, a disease like a pandemic is a mask of what Satan wants to use for his end game, which is the destruction of faith. So if he can keep you away through the use of something like that, the mask of a disease, if he can keep you away from Christ's word and sacrament, it's good by him. I'm talking about Satan. I do a very good Satan. Okay? Because his end game is the destruction of faith. Now, this is true of every aspect of your life. There is not a, 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 a trial or tribulation that you are going through that's not related to unbelief, which is at the core of sin. And the troubles and tribulations, whether it's marital strife or strife between parents and children or strife in the workplace, like Mark has to deal with all the time, okay? The, the end game for Satan toward Christians is to use whatever of those circumstances are to destroy faith, reliance upon Christ, okay? Now, so coming back to this, I will put enmity between you, devil, and the woman, and between your seed. So given what we've said here, your seed, who, who would be the devil's seed? Follow the argument that we're making here. That's right. The, devil, the, the devil's kingdom is the kingdom of unbelief. So the seed or the offspring of the devil are unbelievers. Do you remember the parable that Jesus told of the tares and the wheat? Do you remember that? What's the difference between the tares and the wheat? One thing. Oh, come on. What is the difference between the tares and the Faith, that's correct. The wheat are those who believe in Christ. The tares are those who do not. Now, I mean, one of the features of the parable is that they look the same often. Okay? I was going to make a bad. Do you want to hear a bad? I'll get out of the chancel. It's like Nancy Pelosi, however, does not look like a wheat. You know, I, well, anyway, I just couldn't resist that. Even though she's a, she's a, you know, she feigns being a good Christian who prays for Donald Trump and so forth. But anyway, the, what the, forget that. Oh, this is recorded. Oh, I guess you can't read it. Forget it. So the enmity turns on unbelief. So when it says, I will put enmity between you, devil, and the woman, between your seed, the devil's seed, are those who reject Christ, who do not believe in him, and her seed. Now, this is interesting. This is plural the seed of Satan, and this one is singular, the seed, and notice the editors put a capital S there. Who is the seed of the woman? Ultimately, Jesus, the son of Mary, and, and uh, this particular passage is also predicting and promising the virgin birth, because in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it's always the seed of the man. Here the seed of the woman is a break from the pattern that's found everywhere else in the Old Testament. So the virgin birth is already 
uh, is already indicated by this passage. And then that it's in the singular means that the enmity or the strife or the warfare between unbelief and faith is finally between unbelief and Christ. In other words, when the devil attacks you, he's really attacking Christ. When the devil attacks me as a minister, he's really attacking Christ. When Christians endure persecution for the sake of their faith in Christ, it is really an attack upon Christ. You follow? So you say, I will put enmity between your seed, devil, and her seed, he. Now this he is the seed of a woman, Christ. He shall bruise your head. Now this refers to the devil's, Satan's power. Remember how we Lutherans say, and then we don't know what it means, He's redeemed us from sin, death, and the power of the devil. What is the devil's power? I spent a lot of time on this in Didache. God's word, and specifically, Mark, what does he use? Elaborate. You're not wrong. The truth of God's word. Keep going. Uh, that's, that's not really it, that we sinful people can't be pure. No, that's not really it. In the day that you eat the fruit, you'll die. The day you eat the fruit, you will die. See, Satan uses God's own word. What does he want them to do? He wants them to eat of the fruit, to turn away from the Lord's word, which gave life. And when they do so, he knows that God is obligated, if you will, to destroy them, to bring about their death, you see? So the Christ redeems us from the power of Satan or bruises. Now this verb, bruise, which occurs twice here, means crush. It's, it's to destroy. And it's the same verb that occurs on the Good Friday Old Testament in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant will, you know, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised or crushed for our iniquities. Mel Gibson used that passage in the Passion of the Christ, and it links right back to this. To this. He robs Satan or redeems us from the Satan's power, which is God's own word, they must die, by taking on our death. Let me repeat that. Christ redeems us from the power of Satan by taking the punishment and death that God's own word said we deserve. Do you follow that? So it is as if the Lord were saying to, to Satan, you're right, Man must die. I will become man, and I will die man's death. I will suffer man's punishment. And that's how he crushes Satan's head or his power. If he has died our death, which he has, then 
death has no longer any dominion over us. If he has suffered our punishment, if he has suffered our hell, then Satan cannot condemn us to hell because we belong to Christ who has vanquished Satan's claim upon us, a claim that came from God's own word because of our fall into sin. He has vanquished that claim by taking our place under the judgment of the law, suffering our death, suffering our punishment. Therefore, the devil has no power, he has no right to condemn you. Some of you remember the quotation I've used a um, long time ago, but from the more recent Luther movie. It is a quotation from Luther. When the devil throws your sin in your face, you say, yes, what of it? I am a sinner, but there is one who has made satisfaction for my sin, Jesus Christ the righteous, where he is, there I am. So the idea that you have no power over me because he has redeemed me with his holy precious blood and his innocent suffering and death. So he shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise or crush his heel. Now here, this would be the heel of Jesus and this is referring to the cross. Remember, it is kind of a riddle, this first promise. The Lord God is talking to the serpent, the snake. Satan entered into the creation and took the form of a serpent. How do you kill a serpent? Caleb. You crush its head. So in the process of crushing his head, he suffers the bruising or the crushing of his heel. In other words, it is a reference to his suffering. And this is why in the scriptures you have two things. The, the redeemer is always the one who is willing to pay the price of redemption. Whether it's someone like Boaz, who is willing to redeem the Moabite woman Ruth, or any of those other men who are willing to redeem those wives whose husbands have died, they lay their foot bare, they expose their naked foot, showing their worthiness. Uh, so in the uh, Psalm, Psalm 110, it says of Jesus that all enemies will be placed under his feet. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I place all your enemies under your foot. Okay? Uh, and he tramples sin, death, and hell under his feet. It's also then why in Isaiah of the ministry of the gospel, it says how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. The image of trampling the enemies of sin, death, and hell under feet. So all of these things uh, emanate from this passage here. Pastor Gelbach. Um, just something That's where it comes to its... But that, that also connects the he back to the I, that the seed and God, God has the entity, I am the one who's going to, in the sense of uh, the, uh, how Christ is the fulfillment of God's word, he is God. I think it's a, some and, imagery there. And, and it is God the Father who wills that his son suffer this. And in that event of the cross, 
Again, as I mentioned this morning in the sermon, in another context, but it's the same, the devil's end game is actually to destroy the faith of Jesus, the same as he wanted to destroy the faith of Adam and Eve. In other words, to destroy the reliance upon Christ. Those of you who have seen the Passion of the Christ, it is spot on when the serpent, the devil, is in the Garden of Gethsemane telling Jesus, no one can bear this burden. It is too heavy. Where is your God? You know, all of these things are the temptation not for Jesus not to trust his Father. In other words, to, to do what's, what Adam did. Okay? All right, so I spent a lot of time on this passage. It's a very, uh, it's a very key passage, and there's so much theology in uh, the scriptures that emanate uh, from this. Any further comments or questions? Yes? Thank you. Now I understand why. Yes, uh, the translation of the next chapter, right after chapter 3, is Eve says, literally, I've gotten a man, the Lord. And she rightly interprets the promise. She just had the wrong feller. <laughs> Sounds like Oklahoma. The wrong feller. Okay. Let's go to Genesis chapter 37 then. The book of Genesis has how many chapters, do you know? 50. 50 chapters. The first 11 chapters deal with what's sometimes called the primeval history. We've gone through that last year, starting last fall, and then we came around to uh, COVID-19 and things were in a state of upheaval. Uh, we went through not only the first 11 chapters, which include creation, institution of marriage, fall into sin, Cain murders his brother Abel, the man from the dust, is at enmity with his brother Abel, who is a shepherd, and murders him. Have a familiar ring to it? And then we had uh, the Tower of, uh, we had Noah in the Flood, and then the Tower of Babel, in the first 11 chapters, a lot happens there to explain the kind of world that we have today. And then from chapter 12 on, you have the story of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This morning in the Old Testament reading, we had the promise made to Abraham that was also made to Isaac, then repeated in the wilderness to Jacob. And at the heart of that is in your seed, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So it's also why you should retain the translation seed rather than descendants or offspring, um, just because it, you lose connections elsewhere. For example, a sower went out to, sell, to sow offspring. A sower went out to sow seed. So you've got to retain seed in the Old Testament and connect it to the seed in the parables of Jesus. Or 
the kingdom of God is like a mustard offspring. No, it's like a mustard seed, the tiniest. Okay, but out of that seed grows this tree. It's an image of church, of Jesus being planted in the world and then the church sprouting from him. And was he not planted? When he died upon the cross, they laid his body in the grave. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. You know, unless a kernel of, no, unless a offspring falls, to, you don't speak like that. See, so you want to retain the biblical language rather than interpreting in translation. Let the translation stand, and then out of that comes deeper understandings. The other side of that with her offspring versus her seed, women don't have seed. Co correct. Which is it's very weird. Yeah. Right. And it speaks of the virgin uh, conception. All right, so my point here then in doing this is to remind you where we're at in the Old Testament. The book of Genesis, which means beginnings, is critically important for understanding all of the Bible, including the Gospels, Jesus' ministry. But again, to the 50 chapters, first 11 chapters, a lot happens. Chapter 12, the patriarchs and so forth, Abraham, Isaac, and finally Jacob. And I, I do love the story of Jacob in terms of the fact that his, his name means like trickster or a supplanter. He, he liked to play king of the hill, you know, and pull his brother Esau down and so he could be the top dog and so forth. And he was engaged in all kinds of lying, Matthias, and deception, double-crossing, you know, trickery, Nathaniel. That was Jacob. And then... Uh, now, we don't speak of karma as Christians, you know, but uh, turnabout is fair play or whatever. But what happens is Laban ends up treating Jacob the way Jacob had treated his brother. What God is actually doing in that whole scenario with Uncle Laban, and he works seven years for Rachel, and then surprise, it's Leah. Um, what God is doing there is, is humbling Jacob teaching him to live by faith alone in God's promise. All right. But now he has to turn to chapter 37. Think of 50 chapters. Now from verse chapter 37 to 50, it's all one narrative, essentially, about the patriarch Joseph, the second youngest son of Jacob, born to Jacob and Rachel, his beloved wife. Only Rachel and Benjamin were born of that wife. And 37, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, 49, 50. Wow. 14 chapters out of 50 focuses on Joseph. And at the heart of the narrative of Joseph is the gospel of the forgiveness of sins, which is received as a gift of God's grace and not by works. Did you want to uh, uh, talk about why you named Rachel, Rachel? No. No, okay. <laughs> you see, that's what your father is going to do, you know, he's going to make this deal. All right. So in Joseph, I want you to see a picture of Jesus. 
And I am very disturbed by those who find fault with Joseph. He shouldn't have done this. He shouldn't have done that. Now, Joseph is a prophet of the Lord, and he is a type or a picture of Christ. So Genesis 37, 2 through 11, I want you to keep these points in mind. Joseph was a prophet of the Lord by a gift of God's grace. And being a prophet, it manifested itself in his, in the gift of him being able to do what? Interpret dreams. He couldn't do that on his own. God gave him that gift. And through that gift, God would reveal his will. What happens? His brothers become envious of him because of it. So Joseph's brothers, second point, hated him because the sinful heart despises God's gifts of grace to others. Which make no mistake about it, this is central to the persecution that Christians suffer. And the third point, the Lord was with Joseph and sustained him by his grace whenever he suffered adversity. So he is going to be murdered, but they murder him by throwing him into a pit and keeping him alive. Then they sell him to slave traders. There's Midianites and Ishmaelites that work out this deal, and he becomes on the auction block in Egypt, and he is bought by Potiphar, who is the captain of Pharaoh's guard, like the secret service, I guess you could say, of, of Pharaoh. And then his uh, Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of rape. He does nothing to defend himself, even though he had done nothing wrong. He doesn't throw Potiphar's wife under the bus, but covers over her transgressions. Does that sound familiar? And because he doesn't defend himself, he's thrown into prison. While in prison, he interprets the dreams of Pharaoh's butler and baker who are in the prison. And he says, remember me when you get out. Well, the baker loses his life. The butler, or cupbearer to Pharaoh, forgets about Joseph. So he's still left in the prison until Pharaoh starts to have dreams. And then the butler realizes there was this guy in prison. He could interpret dreams, and he brings him out. The point of the overview now, and we'll be spending a number of weeks on looking at the text, is that repeatedly bad things were happening to Joseph. From the hatred of his brother, selling him into slavery, the false accusation of Potiphar's wife, being forgotten about by Pharaoh's butler, repeatedly bad things are happening to him. There is in no case in Genesis 37 through 50 any confession on Joseph's part that he's getting a raw deal. In fact, quite the opposite. As he will say more than one occasion to his brothers, do not fear. You meant evil against me. God meant it for good. It's not you who sent me to Egypt. It is the Lord. 
How can he say that? The same way that Jesus can say, God the Father sent him as the seed of the woman to suffer and die. This is why I want you to understand that Joseph is a picture of Christ. And at the heart of that is the gospel of the forgiveness of sins that we don't deserve. And it causes him to radically reinterpret life. To radically reinterpret all of the bad stuff that happens to him. It's what enables him not to hold uh, his sins against his brothers and to resent them for what they did to him. In fact, what causes him grief more than anything else is in chapter 50 when they are doubting the forgiveness of the Lord that he spoke to them. He weeps because of it. Philip. Jesus loves the scribes and Pharisees. And then you've got, you know, these sons of Abraham hating the one who's the prophet, killing him off, but he still loves them. Yeah. Genesis 37, verse 2. This is the genealogy of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Billah, and the sons of Zilpah. Remember, those were the other two wives. They had been servants of Leah and Rachel. So Jacob had four wives. Having multiple wives never leads to harmony, just in case you're wondering. His father's wives and Joseph brought a bad report of them to his brother, to his father. And again, here's an example of where someone would use this and say, see? He's tattling on his brothers. He did something wrong. No. He had been placed in a position of oversight by his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. So he makes them this grand vestment. And may I say that the father loved no one more than he loved his only begotten son. Should we be surprised at that? But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all, other, all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now, on the human level, I'm not endorsing, um, you know, loving one of your children, Pam, more than, than another. Like I see, you know, you're sitting next to John there and Wyatt is sitting neither next to you nor his father. <laughs> they love you, man. But what gives us the right to hate anyone for the position that they are in? It, nothing gives us the right to do that. E even if maybe they've acquired the position you know, unfairly or unjustly. Because we as Christians say that what God ordains is always good, even if he permits dastardly people to do dastardly things, he promises to work in those things to the Christian for our good. 
It doesn't mean it's always pleasant. It was not pleasant for Joseph what he suffered at the hands of his brothers. It was not pleasant for Joseph to be falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. But he ate it. He truly did. Now Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it to his brothers. And they hated him even more. And here again, some argue he should not have done that. But here's the thing. If the Lord gives you a word to speak, you sin if you do not speak it. This is all over the prophets. The prophets, I really don't want to do this. You know, famous example of Jonah, who's given a word to speak to the Ninevites, and he gets on board ship and heads in the opposite direction. But the Lord would have none of it. You will speak the word that I gave. All right, so he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, we, so he and his brothers, there we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and indeed your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. You know what a sheaf is, don't you? It's a bundle of grain tied together. Any of you remember those things? where They used to do this with, with wheat, or barley, or even corn, if you've seen corn bundled together, you know, getting ready for the thrashing machine or the, the wheat and the barley and so forth. My uncle Hank used to do competitions with the thrashing machine. So there we were, binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and indeed your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. Dreams are weird. You got Sheaves walking around as if they're people. And they all represent Joseph and Joseph's brothers. And Joseph's brothers, in the form of the sheaves, bow down. Bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now, what is the answer to their question, by the way? Yes. Yes. And where did that dominion come from? It came from God. Then he dreamed and still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him. But his father kept the matter in mind. Now, you should have a little bit of a sense of deja vu here. What is this guy's name? to whom the Lord revealed his will in the form of dreams. Joseph. And while his father Jacob at first rebuked him, he later kept these things in mind. Do you know of any other Joseph to whom the Lord revealed himself in a dream? Joseph, the husband of Mary. 
And not only Joseph, the husband of Mary, but Mary herself did what with the Lord's word? Pondered it, kept it in their heart. So when Joseph, the husband of Mary, is, he is a just man, which means that he is a man who lives by faith in God's promise. He's a righteous man. And because he lives by faith in the promise of the gospel, he doesn't want to divorce his wife and make a public spectacle of her. He knows he's not the father. Because if he divorces her, the mercy that he believes in will be denied to her as she is executed for adultery. So he's a just man. He is thinking about somehow arranging this secretly so that no harm comes to her. And then the Lord reveals himself in a dream to him. Do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And so he arose and he took to himself Mary his wife and he did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son. And of course, just like the Old Testament Joseph, when the Lord's word came to the New Testament Joseph, life became wonderfully easy for him. Here another page. Just as Joseph in the Old Testament receives the word of the Lord, and it is not an easy life, so Joseph in the New Testament receives the word of the Lord, and it's not an easy life. I know that conf conflicts with uh, what Rick Warren has been teaching you, uh, but um, it is nonetheless the truth that in this world we will have tribulation, and through the tribulations that we suffer, the evil one, the serpent, may wish in that enmity to destroy faith, but the Lord wishes to uphold it. All right, so then, they envied him in this matter. Skip down to verse 18. Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Scheming to get your neighbor's inheritance or house under the 10th commandment and 9th commandment. Then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Hey, if you're the Christ, save yourself and we'll believe you. The taunts of Jesus by the Pharisees and the high priests are similar to the taunts that Joseph received. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. And remember, when you fight against the Lord and his word, finish the sentence. You lose. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered. Reuben was the firstborn son, son of Jacob and Leah. When Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him that he might deliver him, that is, that Reuben might deliver him out of their hands and bring him to his father. You can skip to verse 28. Then Midianite traders passed by, 
So the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites, so the Midianites to the Ishmaelites, for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Now, uh, one of the significant things about the Ishmaelites is, do you remember who Ishmael was? The son of Abraham by Hagar, he was not the son of the promise, but he was the son of the bond woman. So he is taken into bondage by the Ishmaelites who sell him to the Egyptians. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this, liar, liar, pants on fire. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? Liar, liar, pants on fire. And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. No, Dad, that's not what happened. We wanted to murder him, but instead we decided to sell him as a slave to Egypt. So he's actually still alive. He's just now in bondage in Egypt. I mean, that's the truth, but that's not... Without doubt, Jacob says, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. What did Joseph's brothers cause their father? Horrendous grief. For what reason? Why did they cause their father horrendous grief? That's not very nice, but why did they do it? Why? Yes. I mean, you've just, do you want to cause your mother grief? Caleb, do you want to cause your mother grief? You know, kill the twins and then say that that didn't happen? Why not? You don't want to kill them? Is that the only reason? It's not the only reason? Is there another reason? You don't want to make her sad. They didn't care about the grief that they brought upon their father. Why? We know, we know that they wanted to kill Joseph out of envy. That's established. But why were they willing to cause their father such grief, the, the grief of mourning? Your son is dead. You will no longer see him in this life. Why do they want to do that? Oh, this is not hard. To protect their own sorry hind end. They didn't love their father. They loved only themselves. You see what the love of self produces. The absence of love for another. Even someone, if they should have loved anyone, it should have been their father. Not to mention their brother whom they murdered. Why are they willing to cause their father grief? Because they want to cover up their own sin. They only care about themselves. The height of wickedness. That's what the devil's temptation turned Adam and Eve into. You know, when the devil said, eat of this free tree, 
and you will be like God. God doesn't want you to be like him. Hello, they already were made in the image and likeness of God. They didn't become more like God when they ate of that tree. That was a lie. They became like their father, the devil, who cares only about himself, who was an egomaniac. So wicked and evil they were that they were even willing to subject their father to horrendous grief. And they didn't care. They did not care. They did not care. They did not love their father. So now they're hating their father as well as their brother. And they begin to convince themselves over the years that this is a wonderful and lovely thing. All right, so Genesis 37, verse 36. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. And skip to chapter 39, verse 5. And I give you permission to read the intervening verses uh, from one week to the next. So it was from that time that he made him overseer of his house, that is, Potiphar did. And all that he had, and the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. So why did the Lord bless uh, Joseph? It is according to what? Aha, August. Because he loved him, and according to what? Goes all the way back to the patriarchs, Matthias. Remember? Blessing. He blessed Joseph. What does the promise say? Yes, Matthias. I will curse those who curse you, and I will bless those who bless you, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So, Joseph is blessed by the Lord because he believes in the Lord's promise. So even though much evil had come upon him, the Lord's blessing was there. Why? Because Joseph lived by faith in the promise of the Lord. Skip to verse 7, chapter 39, verse 7. Now it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. And she said, lie with so what sin are we dealing with here, uh, August? What? Well, it, and it, she's tempting him to adultery, but when she casts longing eyes on him, Benjamin? Covetousness. Covetousness, that is correct. So she covets him. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, which is a way of him expressing that his master completely what? trusts Joseph, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in the house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now notice, unlike his brothers who were prepared to do this great wickedness against their father and against God, because they loved only themselves, Joseph will not succumb to the temptation offered by Potiphar's wife to commit adultery with her, because he considers it a great sin against his master 
and against is God. Notice how the line of direction in terms of action is diametrically different from what his brothers did. So it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. Now some would argue, hey, why didn't she just go to Potiphar and say, look, your wife is a tramp. She wants me to sleep with her. He doesn't do that because he wants to preserve that relationship. That is between Potiphar and Potiphar's wife. So you think about, uh, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. We should fear and love God so that we do not entice or force away our neighbor's wife, workers, or animals, but urge them to stay and do their duty. And that's what, indeed, Joseph was doing. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was inside, that she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. St. Paul said to Timothy, flee youthful lusts. And so it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, See, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came into to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So did she love him, Caleb? No, but she did lust after him and covet him, Benjamin. But it was not true love. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came into me to mock me. So it happened as I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled. There's the evidence, see? So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. He did nothing to defend himself. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed mercy, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And that's where we end today. But you see, repeatedly, the Lord is with Joseph according to the promise that the Lord had made and according to the faith of Joseph that received that promise and trusted in it. All right, the soap opera continues next week. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.